During the Christmas season, Christians celebrate what we will study this morning from Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So if you would like to flip over in your Bible to Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we'll be there momentarily. We will celebrate that the Creator God of the universe humbled Himself by taking the form of a servant who was born in the likeness of men. There are liberal strains of, uh, well, Christianity, if you can still call it that, that deny the virgin birth of our Lord. Let me tell you that um, that is one of the essentials for correct Christian doctrine, is that we believe in the virgin birth of our Lord. But if you believe that God himself... All right, let me grab y'all's attention again. Okay. (laughs) If you believe that God himself chose to become a man so that he could fulfill all righteousness on our behalf for the penalty of our sins, then the virgin birth is really not anything that should stump you, okay? It's easy to believe in the virgin birth if you believe the reason for the virgin birth. The birth of Jesus was incomprehensibly radical. Nobody, no human anyway, understood everything about what was going on when Christ was born. Those who knew the Old Testament knew that a prophet was coming. In Deuteronomy 18, 15, Moses told people that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. All right, so they were expecting a prophet. Their greatest prophet, Moses, had told them that there's another prophet coming like me. They had seen prophets before, and as great as it was to have a prophet to tell them what the word of God was, they did not understand that they would not only have the word of God coming to them from a man, but they would have the word of God incarnate among them. David wrote in Psalm 10 that a priest was coming. He wrote in Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And I won't take that aside and explain the Melchizedek thing. But we knew, the Old Testament saints knew that a priest was coming. Psalm 110 is clearly a messianic psalm. To baffle the Pharisees and to test their understanding of who he was, Jesus refers to this psalm in regard to him in Matthew twenty-two forty-one through 46, where he says, hey, so you guys ask me questions all the time. I got a question for you. What's the deal um, when David is talking about this priest forever? And he also says that, you know, that David is going to say to his Lord and, and this kind of thing. So he is testing their understanding, but he's also referring the psalm back to himself. In the Old Testament, a priest was necessary. He was the one who could go to God on your behalf. The prophet came from God with God's message to the people. The priest went to God on your behalf. And he is the one that was able to offer sacrifices for the atonement of the people. Now they knew a priest was coming, but they did not know what the writer of Hebrews would tell us about, about that priest. Hebrews seven twenty two through 27 tells this about our great high priest. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. 
but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So we knew that a prophet was coming. The Old Testament saints knew that a priest was coming. They also knew that a king was coming. Jeremiah told them that a king was coming from the line of David. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. They knew that a king was coming, but they thought he would be a king of Judah, or maybe even a really impressive king that could reunite uh, the, the kingdom that had broken apart. And maybe it would even be a king of the United Kingdom again. Although that was probably hard to imagine because the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom of Israel nearly a century before Jeremiah prophesied this. As wonderful as it would have been to have a strong king like David who could bring reform and victory back to them, they did not understand that they were looking forward to so much more. Jeremiah was foretelling the coming of the king of kings, the creator and ruler of all that is. I hope you see what I mean when I say the birth of Jesus was incomprehensibly radical. No one could understand that this prophet to come, this priest to come, and this king to come was going to be one person, and that that one person was going to be God himself in the flesh. Now, we can comprehend it because we have the rest of the story. Well, we can comprehend the facts anyway even if we can't fathom the extent of God's love for us that would humble himself to the point of being born in human flesh. All right, our text this morning from Philippians 2, 5 through 11, reads this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that an amazing and beautiful passage? Let's look first where he talks about the mind of Christ. Do any of you remember that Mac Davis song, It's Hard to Be Humble? Anybody remember that? Well, um, Jimmy, would you remind us how that goes? Yeah, Sharon told me he sings, he sings that every morning as he's shaving. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> anyway, so it is, it is, though, hard to be humble, even if you're not perfect in every way, and even if you don't get better looking every day. We think that song is funny, though, right? Because we know people that act that way, right? It's, it's hard. They, they can't be taught because they already know everything. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to follow somebody when you're right all the time and they're not right all the time. Uh, it, it's hard to be humble. It's hard to submit to anybody. The problem is that we all have that attitude to some extent. Well, I think we do. Does anybody else struggle with this besides me? Anybody? <laughs> okay. It's, sometimes it's hard to humble ourselves. Jesus was the only person who didn't have any reason for humility. All right? At the same time, he was the perfect example of humility. Verse 5 in the ESV reads this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, this is certainly a true theological point. <laughs> that you have this mind because of what's, what's the palm of our hand? The indwelling Christ controlling all. We do have that mind because of Christ, or how does it say it, which is yours in Christ. But I think, I prefer the NIV on this one because both translations are certainly possible. But it seems to me that the writer is emphasizing that we should model Christ in humility. And verse 5 in the NIV says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Then in the following verse, he will describe a humility that none of us can ever hope to attain, but it's one that we should all strive for. Now, the reason that we can never attain the level of humility that Christ had is because he was perfect. I mean, you know, we sing about it's hard to be humble when you're perfect. He actually was perfect, and yet he was our example of humility. The best we can do is be terribly imperfect and humble if we can reach humility, right? So we can't, we can't imitate Jesus perfectly, but we should attempt to imitate him by being humble. And again, we have reason to be, so it ought to be easier for us. We have good reason to be humble and still, in spite of that, have a hard time pulling it off. How is it that you and I can develop the mind of Christ? Well, first of all, we have to be saved. Without being saved, there's no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And without the indwelling Holy Spirit, there's no way that we can have the mind of Christ. But next we have to do what Romans 12, 2 tells us. It says, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. It's easy to be conformed to the world you live in, isn't it? But be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That renewing of your mind doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens through daily exposure with the Word of God. Okay, That's how we renew our minds. This holiday season, with all the busyness and traveling, let me encourage you not to neglect the renewing of your mind in the Word. If you want to exemplify a spirit of kindness and giving rather than one of self-interest and grasping, if you want to be that kind of model, that kind of example for your family, then let me tell you to do what verse 5 says, which is, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. 
Now we're about to come to the verses uh, that tell the Christmas story. In verses 6 through 8, Paul shows us the remarkable humility of Christ. See, he surrendered what was rightfully his. It's not that he was grasping for something higher and something more elevated than was his. He had every right to the privileges that came with deity because he was the second person of the Trinity. And in his humility, he surrendered what was rightfully his. Verse 6 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. Notice here both the pre-existence of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus are both taught in this verse. The Son of God is creator, not created. That is one of the fundamental differences between Christianity and various other religions that will claim to be a branch or a division of Christianity, but really are not at all, is the fact of the deity of Christ. If, you wanna, if you're talking to somebody from a different faith and you want to get down to the nuts and bolts about what the differences are, because they'll tell you what all the similarities are, you go to the person and nature and work of Jesus and you'll find those differences pretty quickly. The full deity and full humanity of Christ is one of those essential doctrines where there must not be any hint of compromise. It is a doctrine that we should consider with awe and with tremendous gratitude. You know, when we see more clearly and more clearly who Christ is, and then read these verses about him laying aside these privileges that he had, this status that he had, and becoming one of us, the more we understand him, the more astounding that will be, and the more it will cause us to worship him. It's amazing that he was born in a stable and laid in a manger, rather than being born in a palace and laid in a, in a golden baby bed. But it is so much more amazing that God became a man. That's what is too good to be true. Except it is true. And it's too good. Do you see the astonishing giving nature of Christ here? He was in the ultimate position of authority and privilege that he deserved, that was his by right. And he gave that up to honor his father and to reconcile us to God. We were talking about that in Sunday school this morning, how we were alienated from God with no hope of reconciliation except through Christ becoming man. Let me ask you, what might you need to surrender in order to do the same thing, which is honor your father and reconcile others to God? Uh, let's consider that. You know, we talk about the scripture and we want to learn what it says and we want to see how it might be applied to us. The next step is you taking it, though, and you saying, look, Jesus became a man, laid aside his glory for two things, to honor his father and to reconcile people to God. We're called to imitate Christ. We're called to honor our father and reconcile people to God. Now, what might you need to lay aside in order to be able to do that? That's where you take this and you say, hey, um, Maybe I need to lay aside my Friday evenings so that I can invite some neighbors in, so that I can build relationships with those neighbors, so that I can get the gospel to them. 
Maybe that's something I need to lay aside for the purpose of reconciling people to God and honoring my Father as I do so. Next thing I want us to look at is the humility of Christ through the Incarnation. Verse 7 says, But He emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now we need to be clear as to what happened in the Incarnation. The Son of God veiled His deity, but He did not void His deity. To stop being God, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, is incomprehensible. He has, the, he has life in him. He is the source of all life and all things. And so to quit being God, that's incomprehensible. He didn't quit being who he was. He added a new nature that he had not had before. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology points out that this joining of these two natures is permanent. He says this, Jesus will, re- will remain fully God and fully man yet one person forever. So I think sometimes we get the idea that Jesus took on humanity for a while and then went back to his previous state. But that's not true. He took on humanity to keep forever. So let me read that statement again. Jesus will remain fully God and fully man, yet one person forever. To illustrate this laying aside of Christ's glory... A pastor and theologian named Brian Chappelle told a story from an African missionary that I will try to retell and and paraphrase. In this particular part of Africa, the chief was the strongest man in the village. He wore a heavy headdress and ceremonial robes to show his status and his, uh, his exalted position. Now, one day a villager fell in a well and broke his leg. And the guy was down there and he was helpless. Um, You know, it'd be hard to climb out of a well, but especially with a broken leg, you couldn't do it. And so this dude was in a bad position. Now, no one in that village was strong enough to climb down and get the man and, and climb back with the added burden of this guy on him, except for the chief. So the chief laid aside that big heavy headdress and he laid aside those ceremonial robes so that he could go down in that well and rescue that guy. He didn't stop being the chief, did he? He laid aside his glory. Now, obviously, that's a very imperfect analogy, but Jesus did not cease to be God when he laid aside his glory to come and rescue us. Verse 7 says that he took the form of a servant. Now, let me, let me uh, look with you at John 13, 3 through 5, to see the nature of, of this the depth of this humility. Verse 3 in John 13 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Okay? Jesus didn't have a poor self-image. Right? He knew exactly who he was. He knew where he had come from and he knew where he was going. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Now, washing feet was the job of a servant. And not just a servant, the lowest of servants was the one who was going to wash the feet of people. 
Can you imagine what one of the disciples would have said if he had been asked to wash the feet of his peers? You recall just shortly before and after this, they were talking about, hey, so which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom? (laughs) This was not the behavior that their Lord modeled for them. Do you demand to have things your way? Or are you able to serve others while laying aside your own preferences? Guys, when we talk about music, and the music, I love the music here. Because the music here is done really well by my wonderful and and humble, genuinely humble brother, Jimmy Knight. Um, But when we talk about music, and we talk about styles of music, guys, the thing that we ought to look for and shoot for and attempt to do is lay aside our preferences if we can reach more people with the gospel. Guys, I, he does music I love, but if he didn't do music I love, but was reaching people and, and bringing in some lost people that said, i got to hear this, who cares what my preference is? Can we say amen to that? Okay, because we don't care. Because as long as the words are right and it is honoring to Christ, I don't care what the what the beat is, what the meter is. I don't care about that because we can lay aside our preferences for the sake of reconciling other people. Now, in your relationships with one another, verse 5 tells us, have the same mindset as Christ. We need to lay aside our preferences in a whole bunch of ways in order to make things work better in the church. So when Christ showed us the humility and the service We need to submit to one another. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. It's hard for your children to submit. It's harder for your children to submit when they get older, right? And it's hard for us to submit because we think we know what we're doing and what we ought to do and what we like and we deserve to be happy and all that, right? Ultimately, the humility of Christ was shown in the crucifixion. Verse 8 says, Being found in human form... He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The baby that was born in those humble circumstances so long ago was God. That's absolutely amazing. His destination was the cross. He came here to die in my place. Think about that for a second. He came to die in your place. That is what Christmas is about. It's not about family, although we love and enjoy our families, and that's a great thing. It's not about our friends, although we cherish our friends, and we're so glad that they're around. It's not about food, although we're blessed to have more food than we can eat. When you celebrate Christmas on Wednesday, please think about why Christ came in the first place. And worship him for it. We've seen the amazing humility of Christ. But now let's look for a moment at the exaltation of Christ. Verses 9 through 11. Therefore. Now what does the therefore refer to? It refers to verse 8. That says he was obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
the first coming of our Lord was in tremendous humility. The second coming will be in a fashion fitting for His glory and His majesty. I want you so badly to be ready for His return. If you will bow to His Lordship now, repent of your sins, and place your faith in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf, then His return will be your greatest joy. If you refuse to bow to Him in this life, then you will bow at His return, not in joyful adoration, but in subjection and terror as this conquering King that you resisted comes to establish His kingdom. You can deny Him here and now, but when He returns, you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The greatest need that you have ever had or will ever have is that you have an advocate between you and God as your judge. If you are not saved, you'll be judged according to your works and you will be found guilty. If you are saved, if you are in Christ, then you'll be judged according to Christ's works and you will be perfect and righteous. Allow me to stress that this is a limited time offer. You are not promised tomorrow. Be reconciled to God today. There are so many people that are going to be traveling this Christmas season. And there are going to be crashes. And there are going to be fatalities. And they had no idea that this was their last Christmas. Folks, take care of your business now while you're able to be reconciled to God today now please don't wait until you think you can become a perfect Christian there are no perfect Christians and you will not be the first one Um, it is good it is good and right to hate hypocrisy right if you think if I come to Christ I'm going to be a hypocrite, though, because I'm still going to have these bad habits. That's not a hypocrite, guys. What a hypocrite is, is me standing up here and saying, hey, you need to be perfect like me. (laughs) You can do it. Read your Bible every day. Follow the commands. It's okay. You can do it. Now, if I claim to be perfect and I'm not, that's hypocrisy. But submitting yourself to Christ and trying to follow him with the help of the Spirit and trying to follow him more faithfully every single day and messing up during that process, that's not hypocrisy. That's just you being an imperfect Christian like every other one that has lived throughout all of history. So don't wait to clean yourself up and then come to God because you will be dead before you clean yourself up and before you come to God. Come to Jesus and surrender and plead for his mercy. He will give it to you. The greatest gift that you could give anyone this Christmas is to share with them the reason for the season. When you're around your family this year, let me encourage you to share the gospel with them. I've always heard that it's hardest to share the gospel with your family. And I, I, I'm sorry, to be honest, I don't know why. It seems like those would be the very first people you'd want to share the gospel with. And you may say, yeah, well, but I was a crazy, wild, rebellious teenager. Who cares? Share the gospel with, with people anyway. And say use that as part of your testimony. Say, hey, before Christ saved me, here's what I was. 
But Christ delivered me from that. It's okay. You don't, shame in your past is not a reason not to share the gospel with your family. If they're saved, they're going to rejoice in the truth of your message, right? If you're not sure if they're saved or not, witness to them. If they say, man, I've been a believer for 30 years, but thank you for, you know, <laughs> thank you for sharing this with me. I have never once in my life, it's inconceivable to me that I would be offended by someone sharing the gospel with me. I would know that they loved me and I would thank them for being an obedient servant. If they're lost, then telling them the good news will be the greatest kindness that you could ever do for them. We're going to have a brief and wonderful service on Christmas Eve at 5 p.m. We'll share communion together, hear the Christmas account from Scripture. And I know that we're going to sing and hear some wonderful music. So if you have family in town, bring them with you. It won't be a long service. It will get our minds back in worship mode where they belong during this holiday season. And remember, as you're on the road, as you're sleeping in uh, uncomfortable beds and not getting enough rest, remember this week as you're witnessing with your life and hopefully with your words as the Lord provides opportunity and you're interacting with family and friends, keep verse 5 in mind of what we looked at today. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We're going to stand together and we're going to sing. And let me tell you, we do that for three reasons. One is, if you are here today and you say, I want to become a member of this church, then you can come and we will talk about beginning that process with you. If you're here today and you say, hey, man, I am going to see, you know, Uncle Fred and he's not saved and I want him to be saved. Would you pray with me? If you have a prayer concern and you'd like to come up and share that with me, I'd be glad to pray with you. And if you're here today and you're not 100% certain that you are reconciled to Christ, then come and we'll talk about that and we'll make sure that we get it nailed down. Y'all stand together.